April 13th of 2000, I need power. Yeah, I am on. April 13th of 2000, what may be the understatement of the century, came from space uh, on a trip to the moon. And uh, as replayed in the movie Apollo 13 and all of that. Uh, we're all on this little spaceship together, and you all have a little problem. Uh, year in and year out, you have economics problems. You need to make a buck, you need to, need to get through. Uh, you also have some environmental issues or environmental needs. You'd like to leave the soil in better shape or your farm in better shape for the next generation where you're so fortunate to have those. And then there's a little deal about water that you're sharing with your neighbor that's just a pass through. You get to keep the soil if you can hang on to it. And I know this group will do that. But the water is just a pass through. And there's folks looking at the water and they're looking at you so uh, I can't think of a better group to be taking care of our water today than you all. And then there's the little detail of uh, growing population. We can't all put everything and set aside and go to Florida in the winter and all that and live in teepees in the summer. So what we're gonna do is tell you tonight a story uh, and I hope you believe it, and I'm really interested in, uh, in, in your feedback. But the bottom line is, you can dedicate half of your corn growing space to improving your triple bottom line with little impact, with an asterisk, on farm corn yield. And what I just described earlier is what I call the triple bottom line. You gotta make money, you wanna take care of the soil, and you gotta grow food. And if, I doubt that there's anybody in this group that fits that, but if you just want to make money every year, year in and year out, and that's it, then the bar's open and you can save yourself some time here. Just go uh, have a good time. But we're going to talk about uh, how we might do that and how we can put some specifics into that data. Uh, going to go back a ways, a couple quotes. I want to acknowledge my dad. Um, and one of the things I heard a lot as a child is you can't learn any younger. Now, today we would call that child abuse. I called it growing up on a farm and I wouldn't trade it for the world. And it was a unique experience. I ran through my first fence at age five. <laughs> it wasn't the last fence I ran through. And in fact, given my interest in automation, it I may still not have gone through my last fence, so stay tuned on that one. My mother wanted me to be a priest. My dad thought I should be a patent attorney. So I figured that going to work for John Deere for 41 years and then going and spending 14 years in a cornfield would entitle me to come talk to you, and if I get done early, maybe we'll have a benediction or something at the end. Uh, go forward about 30, 35 years or so, a couple more quotes. You'll see a uh, kind of an interesting looking toy there that represents what we were trying to do in the late 80s, and it was merging two cultures, a German engineering culture and a American engineering culture to create a product. Hopefully, at least half of you guys are running around with the descendants of this product, but the guy I worked for at that time uh, gave me lots of help and lots of advice, but one of his favorite expressions 
was help is determined by the recipient. And at the time I thought he was talking about how I was supposed to help the other folks. I think what he really meant is I wasn't necessarily listening to what he was giving me for help. So I use that expression quite a bit. A few years later, I was uh, pitching a computer project to a accountant turned general manager in a factory. And he pulls out this dollar bill and he says, Bob, he says, in God we trust. Everybody else brings data. So he didn't want to hear about, you know, little trivial stories and all that sort of stuff. He wanted to see numbers. And uh, nothing worse than trying to get numbers past an accountant. So last quote. Um, and this slide kind of summarizes all the things I'm not going to talk about tonight. In the lower right is what matters to you all. What did I put in the wagon? What did I take to town? Am I covering my costs? Am I making money? Uh, the rest of the graphics there are the various ways I go about collecting data. Uh, I'm a fanatic on data. I'm a fanatic on high-resolution data. I don't particularly believe yield monitor uh, data. It's a great picture. It's great for relative information, as one of the earlier speakers said. But I know that if I say to you guys, this is quarter-mile data, and it's an away wagon, you're pretty much going to buy it. Now, the university types, like the good Dr. Shear, who's up next, want to see lots of replicated trials and little things and all that. But as I'll explain in a minute, that isn't necessarily my thing, uh, but I'm interested in augering in. Uh, one of my heroes is the gal that was on uh, NCIS um, uh, with the pigtails. Uh, Abby, yeah. And Abby would just, she'd take the mundane thing and dig into it. And the, the top center picture there is probably the ultimate for me, where I took a, a time-lapse camera, put it on bare ground when the corn was planted, and left the camera there until we handpicked the corn harvest. So I had a series of pictures taken every 30 minutes during the daylight hours for the season. And it, at that point, it was about emergence, and that became a, uh, an interesting part of that. The reason there's a quote here is my good friend Lauren uh, established a Facebook group a few years ago, invited me to be involved in it. Most of you know that when you make a statement on social media, you'll get two or three good responses, and about the fourth reply down, the flaming starts. And, uh, and, and, but this group is really professional, doesn't, doesn't have that problem but I think I had said something or somebody was commenting or somebody was weighing in with, well, we tried that 40 years ago or whatever. And one of my customers, a person who is a very few words and not real active on the social media side, uh, some of you may know him, his name is Ben Fail. He says, look, Bob's got data. And I took that as a huge compliment because ultimately, uh, and in the world of agriculture, and, and, and it's the engineer in me, uh, I'm going to offend everybody here that has a, an agronomy or life sciences degree, but I feel like agronomists are victims because they're recording what's going on, they're recording weather, they're looking at soil conditions and all of that. As an engineer, I'd get up in the morning, I'd say, well, okay, I, I got the laws of physics I can work with, and here's something, and we're going to make it better. So that's, that's where I get my data fanaticism. So what I want to do today is share with you how we got 
the number that I'm going to give you. And you're going to walk out of here with one number for 60-inch rows. And uh, you can believe it or not believe it, but I'm going to share with you how we got there. Uh, but I have to set a little bit of context, and that's, that's called R&D, research and development. And so think, if you would, uh, any of the equipment companies that are out uh, in the lobby and, and here, uh, they can correct me if I want, but in a large corporation that will go unnamed, they had a rule that said 4% of sales would go to R&D. Not 4% of profit, but 4% of sales. And that was generally broken into three categories. Continuous improvement, where you fix stuff. And new programs, which is the next big thing, and then advanced engineering. So, continuous product, uh, current product, continuous improvement. So, fix stuff, uh, cost reduction. Every engineer loves to do cost reduction. Marketing support. You heard about a, a, a glass jar with sunflowers in it this afternoon. That's marketing support. I'd like to tell you that picture's 40 years old. It's more like 40 days old, so uh, I understand some of that stuff. Uh, new product programs is where the bulk of the engineering and R&D dollars is spent, I would say, in almost every manufacturing concern. Uh, it's where you build a bunch of machines the hard way, one at a time. You put them out in the field, you run thousands of hours, uh, you do a bunch of lab tests. It's where the factories get built, where you do a lot of capital improvement and all of that. And if you screw it up, you're betting the company. It's just really important that you don't have surprises in new product programs. And those of you who may have driven the green know that mostly they got it pretty much right. And then there's advanced engineering. And the rule, and, and it took me 35 years in Deere to get to the right job. And it was when I was involved in the advanced engineering work. And we came up with a rule that said we wanted 10% of the R&D, or 10% of the 4%. And our metric was different. We weren't interested in proving reliability or anything. We would cobble together things. It was ideas. It was concepts, but usually it went beyond paper. Usually it culminated in some meeting in a desert someplace, uh, fly in the corporate plane, and the goal was to demonstrate to management that you had an idea that might be worthwhile. And when I was involved, I was pretty pleased to have a 10% success rate. So we might, in a, in a given one or two day session, we might show them 10 different ideas. And if one of them, got traction and moved to new programs, we considered that a success. Now, my management would have liked more than 10%, but, but part of the rule was if you weren't out of the box enough, uh, if, if everything went to production, you obviously weren't trying. So let's take that now and put it into your farming operation. So you do a little R&D every day. Uh, you're, you're, you're finding and fixing problems, you're doing, you're doing uh, imagery type things, whether it's satellite, airplane, uh, drone, whatever, you're out scouting, cost reduction. Uh, you do your cost reduction by talking about what's going on, what people are doing, how can I benchmark myself, and, and all that sort of stuff. So here's your first tip for the night. If your spouse ask you why in the hell you're out driving around with a pickup all day, you just tell the spouse that you're doing continuous improvement R&D. That's lots better than just driving around in the truck. 
the new farming practices, that's where you decide to go buy equipment. You decide you need more horsepower or less, as we heard many times today, and that's okay, or different equipment. You're trying some different products. You're thinking about different treatments. Uh, you may do some strip trials. Uh, this is the world where the universities are doing replicated trials. Uh, the seed corn companies, replicated trials, you got lots of data. You're usually looking for a fairly small improvement and often it takes a lot of statistics to find and have confidence that you got a small improvement. And it's where you spend your capital dollars. And for that reason, you want to be careful. So you're pretty, you know, you got a few relationships, whether it's with your, your advising crew or your accountant or whatever, uh, but you're careful. On the advanced side, I'm suggesting you take 10% of 4% of your land and look at crazy ideas, look at extreme concepts. Uh, the picture you see there was my, one of my first uh, advanced experiments, if you will. And you learn more I think most of you would say this, you learn more when things don't go well. You learn more when you make a mistake. You certainly remember it better and, and you get a legend you can talk about, but you also get to tolerate failure. So if you look at your farm, so for every thousand acres you have, I'm suggesting, and, and I've played this in a previous presentation and a couple guys came up and says, you know, I never really looked at it that way, so that's why you're getting this load dumped on you. So for every thousand acres, you're doing continuous improvement every day. You're out there checking things, making sure you're doing right and all that on 960 acres. My suggestion is when you're thinking about doing something different, whether it's a different planter setup, strip till, no-till, whatever, do it on 40 acres. That's big enough that it matters. It's big enough that you get away from the, the nuances and all of that. But then in that 40 acres, take four acres out the backside of the farm, out behind the hill, out where nobody sees it, and just do something crazy. Just do something that, that you're not sure uh, how it's gonna turn out, but, but what the heck. And so that's the context in which I'm giving you this information today. What you're getting is the results of a one-off, if you will, one-off concept that we looked at that says, what would this do for people's income? What's it do for the soil? And what's it do for total output of the farm? So all of that, all of that verbiage there was about, uh, about what, we, what we want you to walk away from here. And one of the things I'd like you to go home with is the idea that, hey, maybe I'm gonna do a little bit of that myself. Uh, so let's talk about sunlight. Uh, back in 2004, I was still with Indeer, I was in the advanced group, and there was this crazy guy that was doing strip intercropping. And I hadn't been back on the, I hadn't been involved in, in growing crops for, at that point, 30 some years. But he had this crazy idea. And for me as an engineer, it was crazy because he wanted to run 120 inch singles. And in those days, 120 inch singles meant that you replaced MFWD knuckles a lot. Some of you may have done that. And eventually it got addressed on the engineering side with ILS and all that sort of thing. But I was convinced that because he had singles, he was gonna have terrible compaction, terrible results in the center of these strips, both the corn and the beans. So I borrowed a combine 
got, got uh, the local seed dealer to come over with his way wagon, took some measurements. Well, wasn't quite what I thought. In fact, I uh, did that over several years and consistently the edges of these strips was just really good yield with nothing fancy on variety, fertility, population, any of that. So several years later, uh, this happens to be the farmstead that I grew up on. House is gone, thank God, should have been gone when I was growing up in it. My brother let me throw together a little planter and we did some six row strips. Because when I was getting data, it was amazing. It was only the outside row or two that seemed to have the really good yield. So like all these center rows are like wasted. So I said, well, let's do some 66 row stuff, 15 feet. And we did that and, and this, my brother, full disclosure, is a pioneer seed dealer, so he was having me be a little more formal about it than just cobbling something. But, uh, but we did replicated trials and yep, yep, it worked. Uh, and then another friend of mine who had 20 inch corn did some strip intercropping and uh, I'm sure you can't read the numbers, but this is a 12 row strip. The overall yield on that strip was 275. But those edges you see there are like 447, actually 437 on one side. So it's well over 400 bushel. Well, this, this is pretty good, you know? But then you look at the graphic and you say, why waste all that space in the center? Why not just have more edges? So Bob says, well, and I had another engineer friend that owned some farmland, and he, he let me come on his farm, gave me some junk ground. And I didn't understand what junk ground was until I had a couple of years of trying to grow corn on this. But I says, well, okay, I think, I think if we can just do edges and do really well, the edges will pay for everything else. I only have to put half the ground in, into a crop and, and it'll pay for itself. Seemed like a good idea at the time, but it was a humbling experience, uh, to say the least, and it caused me to hold you guys in extremely high uh, awe, I guess is the best word. I couldn't stay out of the weeds. I couldn't manage the, the, the fertility and the chemistry. Uh, my equipment wasn't the right size. It was just a disaster. So I decided I really didn't want to be in the, in the uh, corn growing process. But in the process, again, through the group that, that Lauren started, I became familiar with some growers, large growers in our area, and they became familiar with me. And, and we developed a relationship over several years. And so we have this little deal, and, I, and he says, well, and I had done a couple things with him, and he says, if you want some ground, I'll just let you have some ground. So I made him a promise. I says, I won't take more than one minute of your planting season if you give me 200 rows of corn. And further, I won't take more than one minute of your harvest season. And this guy has thousands of acres to cover, and that worked, and, and we've done that. So, so I've been on his property for several years, and it's my playground. And it's great because he owns the land, he takes care of the fertility, uh, he's a strip tiller, he's a scorched earth guy, so brace yourself, you're gonna see some really bad pictures from the context of this group. But uh, it worked, we had, we had some fun. And so I do things like, uh, this was a two, 200 or 2016 uh, plot, and, and the question on the left there was, how much sunlight does the corn want? 
And I had already concluded that all that God meant for corn strips to be four rows wide, four 30-inch rows. So I had repeated strips of four-row corn. And then if you look at the graphic, I had zero, one, two, three, four, five, and six rows open in that, in that pass there. And, uh, and the gray there is what I lovingly refer to as scorched earth. This guy is so good with weeds, there wasn't a weed in that thing. And this is a half mile long field, so I had an opening in the middle. Um, but it was, uh, it, was, it was pretty interesting. And so that's the sort of thing that I've, that I've done. Now, I just threw out a couple of yield numbers. And some of you probably remember, I just said 447 bushels, right? And this is, a, this is the place where I have to borrow another quote from a friend, and that is, First liar doesn't have a chance. So when I plant corn, I'm punching in a population in my nice little monitor. I put the population per row. When I harvest the corn, I go down the field with my little combine one row at a time and weigh that. So I think and talk and, and integrate row yield. So in uh, 2017, I was pretty sure that God's answer was four rows with a skipped row on either side. Because the previous year, what I learned was that anything more than one row of sunlight was wasting sunlight. And that was kind of an epiphany for me. Just like, whoa, you know, this stuff doesn't have to be real wide. We can, we can just have really high productive strips of corn and a little bit of opening. And this actually looks like a tram line, right? For the folks that have uh, sprayers that can run a 120-inch tread, this, this is how you would how you'd spray this. So in this particular trial here, these are, again, way wagon data, half mile long, excuse me, in this case, quarter mile long rows. The, the row yield next to one row of opening was 360 bushel on your right and 348 on your left. That's pretty good. And, and at this point, I am pushing the population. So I run like, in this case, 55,000 per row in the outer row, 45 in the second, and then 32 usually in the center, or whatever the growers, whatever the growers doing. Except in this case, there is no center. Every row is either an outside row or next to an outside row. So the big deal is let's just harvest all the sunlight we can. But in the center, you go in just one row and that you lose 100 bushels. You're like, whoa, man, you know? So if I look at the strip yield, instead of throwing around numbers like 348, the strip yielded 298. So, okay, that's what the, that's what the corn strip yielded. But then my grower friend says, well, wait a minute, Bob. You got every, every four rows, you're skipping a row. So now I got to take that 298 bushels down to 238 because one out of every five rows is a zero yield. Now what's interesting is that 238 bushels happened to be the same as what his field was yielding in that area in that season. So what that said is, okay, we can have the opening and it's break even. Kind of like, well, I don't know. So then, uh, in early 2017, on a dare, a good friend of mine who's pretty candid, the guy that had loaned me this land earlier, he says, Bob, if you think you're so smart, why don't we plant corn in 40-inch rows? 
You know, we used to do that. Everybody, you know, moves smaller and everybody talks about going narrower. We were in a twin row session earlier today. People talk about 20s, 15s. So why do we do that? And so in the context of advanced practices, I give myself permission to do stupid stuff, okay? So in my plot in 2017, I had a bunch of things going on. You see some little blocks in the, in the back there where I did some goofy stuff. And, but you see uh, uh, in the center of the plot there, you see some rows of pretty narrow strips. Those are single 60-inch rows. And I was pretty sure it was going to be a disaster. Uh, now the nice people at Bex gave me some, some seed corn. I talked to them about it. They kind of looked at me like, yeah, what have you been smoking, you know, and all that. So, um, so this is what the plot, and then I have little field days. So my, my, my clientele and my, my network through Lauren and, and others, uh, if, if we have something to talk about and something to show, we'll sh I'll have like 10 different experiments going on in this 20-acre patch. So it's kind of like a really low-budget version of Dr. Shear's Ohio Farm Science Days. Really low-budget. Uh, so, so this is what we had. And, and the only numbers, I'm not going to torture you with numbers here, but the baseline yield, the growers, uh, I, I always take four or eight of his rows as one of the baselines because I want to prove to myself and to him that I can plant corn as good as him. And it took me a lot of years and a lot of dollars to get to that point, but consistently now I can, I can go out in a grower's field and do as good as him. And that didn't come easy. But so his field was 230 bushels. In this particular year, that's what that, and that was, and he's a good grower. It wasn't the best, best of land, it was pretty good. So, and then there was a bunch of other experiments, but you see a set of numbers there on the right, and that's what single pass of one 60-inch roll uh, across the half a quarter mile field yielded. So this is field link data. Now, in university, I, it, it, I have, on a contract basis, I've planted some plots for people and they go 50 feet and got 80 seeds. It's like, oh my God, you know. But that's what I call university research. My replications is I got 1,320 feet of replications. But realistically, it's only one. So the different varieties there are the, are the numbers. Uh, I had a couple of different populations. And I really didn't pay much attention to it because I was convinced it was just going to be a dumb idea, but something I did just to humor a friend. But the bottom line on that is the 60-inch rows averaged 218 bushels versus 230, so that was 95% of, uh, of what the original yield was. So it wasn't the same, but it was fairly consistent. If you look at those numbers, yeah, there's some variety differences and all that, but they're pretty consistent. The conventional wisdom was that it would have been half. But part of, part of what I do is in my, in my sunshine harvesting work, I push the population. So we had the same population in these 60-inch rows as the field would have. So the row had, in this case, 64,000, so that the field had 32,000. I'm not trying to do a smoke and mirrors here thing, but, but it's really important uh, 
to understand that because that row that's got the extra sunlight can tolerate a lot more population than most anybody would be willing to, anybody in the right mind would be willing to plant corn at. So here's an aerial view uh, from a drone of, uh, of the four row strips and then the 60 inch strips. And so you can see the ground, you know? Well, it's not good, you're wasting sunlight. You know, Bob, you're supposed to be the sunlight guy. What, what's going on here? You know, that's, that's not good. So I just happened to have a time-lapse camera in the field. It wasn't even on a 60-inch roll because I knew they were gonna be a train wreck and we weren't gonna mess with them. So kind of by accident, in the middle of the winter, kind of about now, sitting here looking at all these pictures, I said, hey, wait a minute, I finally understand why a 60-inch roll should do well. And again, as the engineer, when I see something happening, the, this is the uh, Peggy, what's the thing, the, the gal's name? Abby, what the Abby approach is. I gotta figure out what's going on here. I need to understand, I need a model. So if you look at the lower right of the screen, that's four o'clock in the morning on the 1st of July, okay? And the, these are north-south rows, and on the left is a 30-inch opening, and on the right is a 60-inch opening. And this could get really boring, folks, so I'll try to go fast. Uh, and I basically just look at four leaves. There's four leaves out there that are, that are solar collectors. And so now let's just start to move through the day. 5.30, it's daylight. 6 o'clock, a little hazy. At 7.30, the leaves on the, op on the row across from the opening, the open row, are starting to get a lot of sunlight. But you notice it's still, it's daylight, but it's not sunlight shining down in the row. And further, let's see if this cursor works. Are you getting a cursor? Yeah, you are. I don't know where this is. But anyhow, the, so on the, on the dark side of the row, you're not getting a lot of sunlight. So now we keep rolling, the sun goes up, it's nine o'clock in the morning. Okay, here we are, let's go back to 9.30. So at 9.30 in the morning, on the 1st of July, this, is, this was good corn. So the corn's like shoulder high, but the whole plant is getting bathed in sunlight. So all those leaves are just hard at work, okay? Now, if you look at the other two instances, the west side of the, of the row on that left side, it's not getting a lot of sunlight. It's getting some flickering. And the further you look within the row, and you're not getting the sunlight. So, okay, so now that row on the west side has got all this nice sunlight and it stays nice sunlight, got a little bit of haze there midday. And it's not till about 12 o'clock or 12.30, it loses any sunlight. So it went from 9.30 to 12.30, just bathed in sunlight. So this is sunburn time. Uh, but now you go to about 12.30 and you'll notice on the left side, the, of the opening, these leaves are now getting a whole bunch of sunlight and it gets dark over there on the right-hand side. So, okay, so now this, this row's doing really well. It's getting a bunch of sunlight and it's still dark in the middle of that 30-inch row. So there's not, you know, the, and I'm not dinging anybody that loves 20-inch corn, but, but people are so proud of how quickly it canopies. My statement is, okay, after it's canopied the ground, about three days later, it's canopied all the leaves under it. So you're just not getting a lot of sunlight down in there. 
And then, and then you all who know biology a lot better than me know that there's also an air-nitrogen exchange going on there too. Uh, that, that the openness probably creates more air currents and all that sort of stuff. And you've all been in the middle of a cornfield in late August and it's not a fun place to be. So, okay, then you get down to the late afternoon and so it's not till about four o'clock that the right-hand side of this row starts to lose sunlight. And then it starts to get dark. And notice how dark it is in the, in the row. And here at seven o'clock in the evening, those upper leaves are still getting sunlight. So, okay, well, that's simple. And then it gets dark. But now you say, wait a minute, Bob. Wait a minute, let's go back here. I hope I don't crash the computer. Let's go back here. And at 12.30, I got a whole bunch of bare ground with the sunlight on it. I got a whole bunch. And this is, this is terrible, because you're cooking the water out of it, cooking the moisture out. You're killing all the biology. You're not growing anything except weeds. And if this guy wasn't really good at weed control, he'd have a lot of weeds in there. And I know you've all experienced that. So from about 1230 till about four, four o'clock, there was sunlight shining on that open area. All right. So that's why I'm here today. And that's why I'm so excited to hear you all talking about cover crops and other stuff, because that is your opportunity space within your cornfields to do something other than grow weeds, okay? So the breakthrough for me, oops, was, well, okay, I've got this fancy planter, little four-row fancy planter with electric drives and all that stuff, and, but suddenly, wait a minute, if it's just 60-inch rows, all I gotta do is just turn off every other row. I don't need different populations across the planter. I just crank up the population on all the rows. I don't need, you know, I don't need anything really fancy. I can, you know, this is actually not too hard to do. Uh, one variety, one nutrient treatment, and, and you have access to the field. One of my things that I've always liked about strip intercropping is I tell people I want to give them access to any plant in the field any day of the year. And, and, and I say, and I've told folks, well, th this makes really nice sprayer traffic areas. And then somebody always pipes in, and so I know some of you are thinking it, yeah, but the guy that's from the co-op that sprays my corn will still find a way to run over corn because that's what they do. But, but anyhow, so this is pretty open. It's not quite as easy as it sounds because the, the, the not easy button part of it is you really need to manage the space in there. You need to do something with it. Um, and uh, so what do you do with that extra sunlight? Well, uh, Cover crops, we've been talking about that. Soil building, we've been talking about that. To other audiences, those are sometimes new terms. An alternate crop, like maybe hay. Uh, somebody talked about selling wheat straw today. Uh, or grazing. So my friend Lauren uh, heard this story in the fall of 2016. Yeah, when I was gonna do the 60 inch rows. It says, well, Bob, I've heard your sunlight story a few times, and yeah, you might, 
He said, but, but I'm going to do something different. I'm going to have two rows because then every row is an edge row. I'm going to have two rows at 30 inches and then an opening of 60 inches, right? And, and he took a little tiny, tiny corner of his field, a good corner, good field, and, and just did this. And so I go up there uh, on the 23rd of September and took some pictures. And so on the left is what, he, and, and Lauren is good at cover crops, and he had a mix here. This is what it looked like in the 60-inch opening, and on the right is what it was, same day, one or two rows over what it looked like in the 30-inch opening. And so, and, and then same day, or no, a little later, I had gone in in my little 60-inch rows, because I knew Lauren was doing this stuff. I had a little cedar, a little plot cedar, and I went in and I seeded oats. And my grower is so good at the scorched earth that oats didn't have a prayer. So I couldn't do anything in, the, in that because, because that was his farming style. That was his farming practice. Um, so I had kind of told this story uh, a couple times that winter. Um, and there was one picture, every now and then I'll get a good picture. And, and this particular picture is my Pulitzer Prize picture for 2016, uh, 2017. 20, yeah, yeah, fall of 2017. And, and I was presenting to a small group of growers and there were people there, you know, okay, Bob's talking and all that. And when this picture came up, they sat up and said, whoa, you know, uh, uh, tell, me, tell me some more about this. What's going on here? And I didn't understand it because I didn't really know the people. And what I realized after talking with them and listening and interacting, they had, they had grazing interest. They wanted to graze their cover crops. And if you're thinking about grazing opportunities, this is pretty good. So... We, uh, I, I present, made a presentation at the Practical Farmers of Iowa meeting in Ames last winter, and, and then a really uh, nice guy named Dean Houghton wrote a really well-defined, very nice article, happened to put it in the John Deere furrow. Sorry, strip-deal guys, <laughs> I gotta give somebody else some credit here. But a lot of people read that thing, and a lot of people kind of trust it, I think. And so people started calling me. They said, hey, you know what, uh, this doesn't look that hard. You know, I could do that. And said, okay, well, yeah, I know. I'll, okay, well, I'll send you a spreadsheet. I'll send you a little PowerPoint thing on how to do this. Okay, yep, yep. Well, there's a term there. Uh, how, am I, how am I doing my time? I'm okay? I'm okay, good. Uh, I'm going to explain what the term BTN means with a tiny little John Deere story, if you'll tolerate it with me. In the product development cycle for the 8000 series tractor, uh, a young engineer, and this is a true story, a young engineer was trying to figure out how to put a buddy seat in there. John Deere calls it an instructor seat, you call it a buddy seat. And the engineer says, well, I can take the seat that's in the six and seven thousands and I can put it in there and all of that. And he was having a conversation with the marketing guy. And, and he's now passed away, but a wonderful guy, Oklahoman, beautiful voice. You've heard him in many John Deere commercials. And he says, oh, well, he says, well, I guess we'll call it the BTN seat because it's better than nothing. <laughs> and so so what, what these are is BTN plots because they're better than nothing. Because when I put together 
a proposal on replicated trials with statistically relevant paired comparisons and all that, people go, oh, yeah, okay, I kind of got that, you know. And, well, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm interested. This, this looks pretty good. And then they'd get real quiet. And then one day I'd get a phone call. And I hear the vacuum fan running in the background, the guy sitting in the tractor cab, and it's his last day of planting, and it, he's on schedule and things are going. He says, Bob, tell, tell me again about these plots. And at that point, it was like, okay, you're ready for a BTN plot. And all you need to do is go turn off half your rows, make one pass across the field, and when you come back, well, then, and then turn them back on, and when you harvest in the fall, tell me how the middle of that one planter pass compared with the baseline. Now, those of you who have agronomy degrees and, and in that stuff know that's a train wreck. It's just a train wreck. But what was interesting, and, and the number keeps growing because I keep hearing about people that kind of got wind of this and, and they're just doing it, you know? And, and so these are, they're right, my current count is 30 folks across the US. I had one in West Virginia and one in Maryland, but they didn't, they didn't get it done. And so this becomes what you do when you have time. And most of you don't have any time, but, but it was a compliment to these guys that they said, well, if I, can, if I can work it in, I might do that. You know, Is this gonna cost me anything? No, 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 okay. So, uh, and as far west as Sterling, Colorado. Uh, under, a, under a center pivot and all of that. And, and I think there's one in Canada. Most, a goodly number of them, I don't even know where they are. I don't know where they live. All I have is an email address. Uh, and then I asked them if it was okay for me to share their name and location. And a significant number of them said, eh, just as soon not. I think they didn't want people thinking they were crazy. I think they didn't want a bunch of telemarketers, even more, calling them, or, or all of that. So, so I've just said, okay, I'm not gonna broadcast anybody's name or whatever. Um, it is nine states uh, represented, not replicated. Uh, seven of the guys had cover crops, and that, for me, was great, because this isn't worth doing if you don't have cover crops, because you're not getting any more corn. If you just wanna grow corn, don't do this. But if you wanna, wanna have a whole bunch better uh, success, I think, with your cover crops, good opportunity. Um, excuse me, seven did not and five did. So, uh, come on, come on. Up oh, that came, all right. Nervous twitch. Okay, now we let the computer catch up. That's the part we're doing right now. Photos are nice, but they suck up computer horsepower. Uh, I just want to get to that picture with all those nice people in it, because I want to acknowledge. <laughs> that really hurt. Not half as bad as getting pulled out of the mud with a red tractor this fall, but <laughs> that hurt. So this is just a, a sampling of the guys, uh, Beaver Dam, Wisconsin here, uh, Monticello, Iowa. God, okay, there, okay, just don't touch the button, Bob. Um, 
Good people, is a, one of the guys is getting an award, Adam Nikonaki, I think today, is today his birthday or yesterday? Today's maybe his birthday. That sign says, with great soil comes great responsibility. That's a really, really nice thing to have hanging on your wall. So, uh, so that's, and, and the sad part is that there's a whole bunch of data I haven't gotten from this. I've gotten a few pictures. Uh, and so this is kind of a representative sample. The one in the upper right is my plot from this year. Uh, and we had a terrible windstorm on the 30th of June and blew it all down and just an absolute train wreck. But uh, uh, the information came back in interesting ways. The information I like the best is when they take their little camera, take a picture of the sheet that the guy with the, their seed dealer with the way wagon had. Okay. Am I, I'm getting, one more minute. Okay, moving on. The sweet spot in this whole deal is grazing. Grazing, grazing, grazing. And animals are one of the reasons I went to Iowa State University to be an engineer. But one guy, when I, out of my group, I managed to get one guy who happened to have a picture of his cows out grazing. Um, and then I started noticing cattle. I had never paid any attention to cattle. And, and where I live is a lot of seed corn. It's kind of in an almost suburban environment and all of that. Um, so the answer is, the answer is 5%. 5% of your yield is, field yield is what you give up. I'm almost there. Uh, if you have 60 inch rows versus 30 inch rows, and if you can get the same field population. Now, some of the people that came in on slightly lower yields confessed that their finger pickup planters with mechanical transmissions wouldn't go beyond about 57,000 or so. And so typically it'd be like 34, 68, and, and I, think that, I think that caps it off. Uh, now you can say, okay, Bob, you got, you got uh, 12, looks like 12 uh, responses. There's a whole bunch you didn't get. And, I, and I'm having a video conference here. The tolerance on that 5% number is I think it's 5% plus or minus 10%. So it could be as low as 17% loss or as high as 9% gain. Bottom line, this is your number. You can dedicate half of your corn growing space to improving, improving your triple bottom line by giving up 5% of your corn yield. And that's with no optimization of population, no optimization of variety, and none of the rigor that goes with new practices. I think I'm done. I wanna acknowledge one guy, there's a guy named Leroy Dykeman, who got a patent, like my dad, he had a bunch of patents, no money, a lot of patents. Leroy got a patent on the solar corridor, which is the concept of harvesting the sun. And, but I don't think he ever figured out how to commercialize that. Um, but there's a whole bunch of folks that helped here, and it was really good. There is an email address for me in the handout, but I like this one better. It's kind of a, somehow you guys ended up with kind of an old dead email address, but the Cedar Valley Innovation at gmail.com, singular on innovation, 